Our lesson for the day is from Psalm 32. We're reading the second half of Psalm 32, verses 6 through 11. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Be Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word, that it's true and it's right. I pray now for the help of your spirit, that your spirit would come now and help me preach your word. And I pray that we would receive it and that it would produce an abundantly good harvest in us, Father. Use your word to make us into people who are wise, people who will love you and love our neighbor. Come now and be our helper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so today we're looking at one of my favorite psalms in all the scriptures, Psalm 32. This psalm is really all about the goodness uh, of confession and repentance. A few weeks ago, Rich preached two really excellent sermons on the topic of confession. If you somehow missed those sermons, I would strongly commend those to you, recommend you check them out on the church's website or the Facebook page or the podcast and listen to those. So in some ways, today is going to kind of be the unofficial uh, part three, really those two sermons that Rich preached on the topic of confession. It's going to piggyback on some of the things that he, he mentioned in those sermons. Okay, let's talk for just a second about Psalm 32 as a whole before we dive into uh, the psalm verse by verse. So Psalm 32 is one of seven psalms that the early church actually grouped together and they designated them as penitential psalms, psalms that express godly sorrow in repentance. This psalm is often been read in the church during the season of Lent when there's a particular focus on this theme of repentance. And our psalm actually has a very long, rich history within the church. We know that it was one of Augustine's favorite psalms. Augustine loved this psalm so much that he had it very near to him throughout his entire life and even in his death. Augustine had this psalm actually, uh, had a copy of it beside his bed. So the idea was that every morning when he rose, he would see this psalm directly in front of him. And while on his deathbed, he actually requested that this psalm along with the other uh, penitential psalms would be written out in place so that he could see them and read them over and over as he would pass from this life into the next. So let's turn our attention now to God's word. Let's dig into Psalm 32. So how does David begin our psalm? He begins by talking about the blessings of being forgiven. He writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David gives us two verses at the very beginning of the psalm that really are going to summarize everything he's going to say, what the psalm is all about, the goodness of experiencing God's forgiveness 
in the midst of our sin. The psalm is really about this journey of repentance for David. How God takes David from this place of denial initially about his sin to this place of confession and then finally to this place of joyful worship. This idea of confession and repentance, when we think about this, this might have connotations of something that is spiritually dour, something that is a downer in some kind of way. We might wrongly think that repentance is primarily about making sure that we feel bad enough about our sin. And while repentance does involve hard things, it involves hard emotions, it does involve feeling an appropriate amount of sorrow and understanding our, the guilt of our sin. I want us to notice that in Psalm 32, it begins and ends with a description of people who are actually quite happy. Do you see this? Our psalm starts by saying, blessed, which could be translated also as happy, are the ones who have their sins forgiven. Then after a description of David's confession of his sin and repentance, the psalm closes with this exhortation to God's people to be glad in the Lord and to rejoice, to shout for joy. So it's important to see here at the very beginning that the goal of confession, the goal of repentance, is a greater experience of joy, a deeper happiness that's rooted in God's forgiving grace that is constantly flowing towards sinners who repent of their sins. Okay, we can divide our psalm into two parts. Let's divide it uh, verses 1 through 5. In this first part, we see David's movement towards God in confession and repentance. And then in the second half, verses 6 through 11, David gives us the aftermath and the lessons that he's learned from this particular experience of repentance. So let's look now at the very first half of what we just read in verses 1 through 5 in our psalm. So we said David begins Psalm 1 by saying, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We're going to see this later in verse 5, that only God and God alone can adequately provide a covering for our sin. All our own attempts to cover our sin fail and keep us away from the joy of repentance that's that's designed to lead us toward What we see in verses 1 through 5 is David wrestle with whether or not he will try to cover his sin on his own or whether or not he will accept God's covering of his sin through confession and receiving God's forgiveness. This is the same dynamic we see often in our own lives. You see this at the very first scene in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's fall in the beginning of the scriptures. You might remember that as soon as our first parents fall into sin, what did they do? Well, they they get busy right away. They get to work attempting to make clothes for themselves in order to hide themselves from God in some way. And this first broken response of our progenitors was really symbolic of a deeper problem, the futile attempt of sinners to deal with their sin apart from God. And again, all of us face this. All of us struggle with this in some way. We make empty promises, right, in the aftermath of our sin. We will never do this particular sin again. Maybe we make promises to others. We will finally change, wrongly believing that just our sheer willpower will be enough to make up 
for our sin. But what David does is he proclaims the good truth about our sin from the very get-go, from the very first verse of this psalm, that God's people will experience his blessings only by receiving his covering for our sins. We are blessed when we see that God and God alone must be the one to provide an adequate covering for our sin through his gracious gift of forgiveness. So David continues on in verse 2 by giving us this parallelism, this a slight variation or restating of what he just said in verse 1. He writes, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. David will elaborate on the second part of verse 2, the importance of rejecting deceit, by continuing on in verse 3, telling us that there was a period of time when he was silent in the face of his sin. We get the sense here that David for a time sought to deceive himself about his own sin. He sought to deny it or downplay it in some way. And we don't know exactly the circumstances uh, of this psalm. We don't know from the historical books of the Old Testament uh, what was happening in this specific instance when David sinned. It could be referring to the time when David committed these incredibly powerful destructive sins of murder and adultery when he took Bathsheba to be his wife and he had her husband Uriah killed. We know that some period of time took place between when David committed these very serious sins and when he finally saw what he had done and he repented through hearing the words of the prophet Nathan. But whatever the circumstances, we see in our psalm that David, like all of us, uh, we're slow to own up to the sin sometimes. We're slow to confess it. We're slow to name it for what it is and repent of it. Instead of honestly confronting his own sin, David worked to avoid this in some way, to run from it, to keep quiet about it, to stay silent in the face of what he had done. If confession and repentance is one of the most important ways we tell the truth, then avoiding our sin is one of the most destructive ways that we try to lie to ourselves and seek to deceive ourselves and others. There's always some kind of self-deception that's involved in our sin. Whether that's in the aftermath and we seek to avoid it by not taking responsibility for it in some way or in the first steps that we take towards sin initially. Whenever we sin, even before we cross the actual line, we're lying. We're lying to ourselves to try to justify something that we know is wrong. Cornelius Plantica, uh, he helpfully says this about self-deception, talking about our sin. Listen to what he says. He says, self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves. We deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. We prefy ugly realities and sell ourselves the prefied versions. And so all of us uh, at various times in our lives do what David describes in verse 3. We seek to hide or we avoid or we remain silent in the face of our sin. And people of God, we need to consider carefully why do we do this? Why often can we get stuck in this pattern in the aftermath of our sin? Why do we deceive ourselves and attempt to silent, silence this voice, right? A conviction that God speaks in these moments. Well, we can answer this in a lot of different ways. Shame for a lot of us is a huge factor in this. 
a kind of demonic shame that is self-destructive. This is about the fear of exposure, the fear that your sins and your weaknesses are going to be found out. They're going to be known and they're going to be received with condemnation or disgust or ridicule instead of kindness or grace or forgiveness. Demonic shame assaults the glory of the image of God that we're all made to reflect as image bearers. And again, you see this in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's very first sin. Do you remember what God finds when he enters the garden after Adam and Eve's fall? He finds his beloved king and queen, the ones created to reign and rule over all his creation, hiding in the bushes like frightened animals. And the presence of this same kind of shame shows up in our lives in so many different ways. Shame tells you the awful lie that there's no way that you could ever come clean and yet still be loved. That there's no way you could ever be honest but also forgiven. Shame leads you to get stuck in this self-destructive pattern of hating yourself more than you hate your sin and the inability to be able to distinguish between your sin and yourself. We also seek to avoid and deny our own sin as a way to try to avoid the pain of confession and repentance that we feel. There is necessary redemptive suffering that is always a part of God's sanctification in our lives. And the short-term pain of confession will always outweigh the long-term spiritual damage that comes with this commitment to denial. Another reason we often silently sit on our sins and refuse to face them is because of the spiritual hardness that we we can begin to develop when we choose to stay in this place that seeks to insulate ourselves from the necessary pain of repentance. And again, this happens in our lives in lots of ways. This often happens within the context of our relationships when people harm you in a really significant way. One of the greatest tragedies of being sinned against by other people is not only the overwhelming pain that you feel from others, but also all the ways that you often begin to lose sight of yourself. You begin to actually lose sight of your own sin. When others sin against us, it's like we begin to look into a mirror that is busted and fractured so that everything you see in this mirror has been distorted in some kind of way. And so it's only through the mercy and help of God you can begin to rightly see yourself and see your actual sin whenever you've been harmed by other people. Years ago, my wife and I saw this illustrated in a a really powerful way. And this is another church uh, that we served at for a number of years. And we got to know this woman that uh, was a really incredible woman in a lot of ways. This godly woman had uh, two daughters. We got to know her. She was single at the time. And her story was that several years prior uh, to us getting to know her, she discovered that her husband was cheating on her, committing adultery with another woman. And she would actually go on to get a divorce for this. But what always really struck me about this particular woman was how joyful she was, how well she loved people, how surprisingly free she was from bitterness and hatred that you just think surely she would have to feel that at some point. How was she able to do this? How was she able to become such a godly woman in the face of being sinned against in such a devastating way? Listen to what she once told my wife. She said this to my wife years ago. She said something basically like this. She said, you know, when things really began to change for me, 
was when I began to see them my own sin, my bitterness, my hatred towards my ex-husband was really no better than his adultery. And that I needed God's gospel of grace just as badly as he did. What a beautiful, God-glorifying thing to say, right? This saint really modeled for God's people the life-transforming power of confession and repentance for his sins. All right, so David says that for some amount of time, we don't know how long, he tried to stay quiet. He tried to stay silent about his sin. But then he writes in verses 3 through 5 that something glorious happened while he chose to stay in this place of denial and self-deception. God loved David too much to let him get away with it. And so David felt God's heavy hand of conviction on him. David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. So it seems that David's conviction, God's conviction of David over sin was something he felt so deep that he actually began to feel it in his own body. We don't know all the details of how exactly David felt, but we know that there's some kind of inner struggle here, some kind of suffering and turmoil involved in his refusal to deal with his sin and then God's pursuing conviction of him. You get the sense that no matter how hard David tried to avoid it, God's pursuit of him was relentless. He felt God coming after him hard day and night, we're told, in this way that was overwhelming, in this way that was exhausting for David. And living in the South, I think we can relate here, right, to David's imagery of his strength being dried up as by the heat of summer. It's hard to know for certain because David doesn't elaborate, but you have to wonder, uh, was David experiencing something like depression symptoms when he says that his strength is dried up, that he was, he was wiped out? David's refusal to deal with his sin and his subsequent guilt left him feeling overwhelmed in a way that he was emotionally, he was even physically depleted. And so after all this, David decides to finally come clean before God and to stop his foolish denial of his sin. David says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So in verse 5, David describes this prodigal son kind of moment where by God's grace he rejects the folly of self-deceit and the avoiding of his sin. He rejects the pain and the futility of trying to cover his own sins himself alone apart from God, and he comes clean. He confesses his sin to God, and he receives God's gracious covering in this free gift of forgiveness. Verse 5 contains not only the mechanics of how we do regular repentance, but it's the very heart of the gospel message itself, how God covers over the sins of his people. We know that God's forgiveness is freely given, but that this covering for our sin comes at a great cost, the cost of God giving his only son over to the judgment and the death of the cross. Psalm 32, like all the other scriptures that we find, it finds its deepest fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. His death and his resurrection is our greatest assurance that verse 5 is true, that all our sins are truly forgiven. When we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will quote verses 1 and 2 from Psalm 32 to talk about God's work of justification 
that he does for us in Christ. The New Testament, especially Paul, presents Jesus as God's full and final covering for our sin. And the cross is the place where God made complete propitiation for all of our sins. Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection, again, this is our ultimate assurance of pardon, that God really has finally, truly dealt with all of your sins. People of God, don't look to how you feel to know whether or not God has forgiven you. Don't look to how many times you have struggled with the same sin. Don't look to how someone else has responded to your sin to know, could I be forgiven? Don't look to anything else except the finished work of Christ. That is your only place big enough to absorb all your shame and all your guilt. That's the only place that is great enough to absorb the anxiety and the fear that we persistently feel in the aftermath of our sin. Okay, so we come now to the second part of our psalm, verses 6 through 11, where David's going to give us now the lessons that he's learned in the aftermath of this experience of confessing a sin and repenting. What you see in this, the second half of the psalm is elements of wisdom writing here, which has actually prompted some people to put Psalm 32 into the category of a wisdom psalm. And so we should see the reasoning here behind why words of wisdom would follow David's words about confession and repentance. Repentance makes us into people who are wise. It makes us into people who actually have something to teach other people. God has called us to confess and repent of our sins, not only for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of God's people. So that people can learn what godliness looks like. What does maturity look like? What does faith in action actually look like? So what does David say in the second half? In verses 6 through 7, he begins by exhorting God's people to come to him. If we can have this full assurance of knowing that God's forgiveness uh, is available to us in Christ, for all those who repent, then David exhorts us to be people who freely and gladly go to God with our sin. David assures us that repentant sinners will not discover a God who will cruelly cast them out for their sins, but the God of grace, the God who will be a hiding place for us, as David says, a rescue, a refuge in the midst of our sins, as David says in verses 6 through 7. We will discover the God who will be for you, the God who will be present to help you fight. The last part of verse 7, you surround me with shouts of deliverance, gives us this magnificent picture of God as a warrior who rushes into battle and gives this battle cry in order to save his people and rescue his people. People of God, no matter how painful it is, don't ever stop taking all of your sins to God. Take your anger. Take your hatred. Take your despair to Him. Take all your shame-filled lust. Take your pride and your selfishness and your envy and your smoldering bitterness to Him. Take your persistent longings for revenge, your desire to harm people who have harmed you. Take all your cold unbelief, all your self-loathing and all the ways that you don't take God at His word. Believe by faith that the pain and hard work of repentance is the only pathway to knowing God's steadfast love. 
We'll see this later in verse 9, that if we choose the path of the wicked, the path of denying and avoiding our sin, we will know a pain and sorrow that is far worse than the pain that's involved in facing the parts of ourselves that feel the most broken. In verses 8 through 9, we hear God speaking through the voice of David, exhorting us to not choose the path of foolish avoidance in the midst of our sin. He writes that God's people should not be like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed by bit and bridle or will not stay near to its owner. So we come now finally to the end of our psalm. And at the very end we see that David closes by bringing us full circle and taking us back to this description of the goodness and blessing of God. David began by telling us of the blessings that we have because our sins have been forgiven and covered by God. And he finishes our psalm by describing for us these blessings of being surrounded by the steadfast love of God. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So in these last two verses, what we see is this very common contrast that you often see throughout wisdom literature in the Bible, this contrast between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. David tells us that the wicked are defined by many sorrows, but steadfast love uh, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The righteous are defined by the joy that comes with knowing God's love and knowing God's forgiveness. His steadfast love, his loyal covenant love that's given to his people. In the context of our psalm, David is not making a statement about the overall quantity of sorrow or suffering uh, that the wicked and the righteous will have. We know from lots of other places in the scriptures that we as God's people will certainly know plenty of sorrows in our lives. But within the context of our psalm, David is making a particular statement about a, a certain kind of sorrow that comes when you refuse to face your sin, when you refuse to repent of the sin and receive God's gracious forgiveness. This sorrow comes when we choose this dark path of self-reliance, the path of self-deception and denial. This is the sorrow that comes when all our homemade attempts to cover our sin and deal with it ourselves apart from God eventually fail. This is a sorrow that comes when we refuse to face the redemptive pain of God's prescription of confession and repentance for our sin. But we as God's people, the righteous as the Bible calls us, are those who know the joy of being forgiven by God. We are people who have some really good reasons to gather every single week for this place to worship the living God and to shout for joy. We are people who know and trust that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And all these things that I'm saying could really be summarized by saying that God's people are people who, because of God's grace and his work of repentance and confession, we are fundamentally different from the world. Those who do not trust God, those who are referred to as the wicked in the scriptures. People of God, despair is the only logical end for all those outside of Christ because there is no way to deal with the ever-present reality of sin. And so the realm of unbelief is the realm of spiritual insanity where people must constantly come up with ways to attempt to avoid We, as God's people, we have reasons to rejoice in the face of all of our battles with sin because we know 
that we are not people who are at peace with God. And only God's people have the capacity to face reality and describe reality with complete honesty. We as God's people have the capacity to face the broken mess that you find in your own hearts on a regular basis and experience the healing power of grace that comes to us when we repent of our sins and confess them. Another hallmark of being a person who knows the joy of being forgiven is that we become humble people. We become approachable people. Experiencing the joy of repentance melts away our fleshly tendency to be defensive at any time someone wants to speak to you about your own sin. In confessing our sins to God, we have already done the hardest thing, coming before a holy God and telling him the truth about how we have broken his holy laws. And we humbly receive his merciful covering. And we desperately need his merciful covering in Jesus. So people of God, if you're able to do this, then now it becomes much easier for you to actually confess your sins to other frail, finite sinners. We don't have to fear being exposed by anyone because we've already been exposed by the living God, the one who matters more than any person in the universe. And instead of being crushed or rejected, you've been forgiven in Christ. And God has surrounded you. He continues to surround you with his steadfast love. So this means that we can finally put to rest all our defenses, all our futile self-justifications that seek to cover our sins. And we can actually begin to listen to people. And we can stop being obsessed with whether or not we are right or whether or not we can vindicate ourselves. And we can begin to love people in a way that mirrors our merciful God. We can begin to be people who shine forth his glory into a world that desperately needs his life.